That's a great perspective, and you're, you'll find that theme of the video running through this uh, series of sermons we're starting today uh, in each one. Today we are starting a new sermon series entitled Running on Empty. And over the next few weeks, then, we're going to talk about some of those areas in our lives that can either energize us and refresh us, encourage us, excite us, build us up, or drain us, wear us out, discourage us, depress us, and tear us down, right? Your, your work, for instance, whether it's time in an office or being at home raising kids, whether it's your school load, whether it's your first job, or maybe a career that you've had for many years, that job can be a great source of stress. It can deplete you in many ways and tear you down, or it can be a great source of joy, something that energizes and builds you up. And the same can be said for our finances, right? Our finances can be a great negative in our lives or a great positive. The same can be said for many areas of our lives, our possessions, our schedules, our calendars, our commitments. All of those things can be sources of joy and and forces for good in our lives, or they can be great burdens that wear us down. So we're going to talk about many of these areas of our life over the next several weeks and how to experience and express them from a biblical perspective. Because once we understand how God intended us to live out each of these areas of our lives, the more likely that we are to experience and view them in a positive way, a way that builds up and enriches our lives. And so today we're going to start out with an area of our lives that is certainly one of the top sources of joy for people everywhere, and simultaneously, I think, one of the top sources of suffering for people everywhere as well. We're going to talk about relationships. And if you look at different types of media, television programming, radio programming, songwriting, movie plots, social media, there's a massive percentage of those mediums of communication dedicated to the subject of relationships, both good and bad. If you look at the percentage of hours spent in counseling, although uh, people certainly do seek counseling over their finances, their jobs, you know, time management and so on. But overwhelmingly, the vast majority of hours spent in counseling by pastors, and I suspect this includes therapists as well, although I don't know, the majority of those hours are spent talking about relationships. And so why does this area of life continue to be such a significant focus? Why do people continually seek out relationships and new relationships, uh, even though they can be such a vast source of personal suffering? It's because God made us, He created us, to be together, to live together in community, not alone in isolation, right? Right from the beginning in Genesis, in God's creation, Genesis 2.8, He looked at Adam, who was the only human yet created, and He said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, a fit for him. Okay, we, we were created, we were hardwired to be in relationship with other human beings. And I know a few people that would rather spend time with their dog than other people. But remember, God made Eve after he made all of the animals, right? And he determined that none of them was an adequate complement uh, to Adam. So whether you want to be or not, you were created to be in relationship with other people. And if that's true then why are some relationships so difficult? Why are we constantly drained, uh, worn down by some relationships? 
I believe the answer to that is in the Word of God. And I'm absolutely convinced that relationships that are not lived out according to Scripture, according to God's Word, are doomed to dysfunction at best and total failure at worst. So we're going to take a look at what the Bible teaches us about relationships, at least as much as we have time for this week and next week. Uh, This is a part one and part two sermon today, and we'll see if we can discover through God's Word a clear pathway to relationships that help us to thrive and grow and become better people, and also how to either heal or cut away those relationships that tear us down and wear us out and, and make us generally unhealthy people, okay? So we're going to turn to Romans chapter 12. Uh, if you brought your Bible, we'll have it on the screen as well, if not. This is Paul's letter to the Christian churches in Rome, and the first half of this chapter will be our main uh, text for this morning. And as usual, we'll examine several other passages as we go along as well. And then next week, we'll finish up this subject of relationships with part two of this message as we work through the rest of chapter 12, okay? So Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 1. And Paul uh, wrote this letter to the Roman churches uh, probably while he was in Corinth on his third missionary journey in about AD 57 or so. Let's read these first two verses together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul's opening statement to this chapter is absolutely foundational to forming healthy relationships, okay? And before we dissect these verses, it's important that we give attention to the fifth word in verse 1, the word therefore. Paul starts the chapter out with, I appeal to you, therefore. And the therefore in this verse points back to Paul's entire argument from chapter 1, from about verse 18 all the way through to chapter 11, verse 36, which is that Christians are to give themselves entirely to God because of His saving grace for us. That's the whole theme. And then to further emphasize that point, Paul goes on here in the beginning of chapter 12 to say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And the way that Paul uses the word bodies here, it's the Greek word soma, he's referencing both the body and the soul. Okay, in other words, he's not simply referring to the dedication of our physical body to Christ. He also says uh, we very much uh, need to dedicate our souls, the totality of all that we are, to God. So he's saying present yourself, all of yourself, as a living sacrifice, physically, spiritually, emotionally, give it all to Christ. Because once you're in Christ, it all belongs to Him. All of it, everything. And then he adds to that statement in verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, this world, the ways of this world, the wisdom of this world, what this world says about you and how you are to live together in it, is wrong. So don't allow yourself to be conformed to the ways of this world. And it's really not very hard to see the truth in Paul's statement here, is it? I mean, we look at the state of much of the world today, the condition of marriages, families, uh, societal structures today, really throughout history. 
crime, needless suffering, the sheer dysfunction in many uh, areas of society. In our society, one of the richest, most affluent nations in the world. Interestingly, I was just reading uh, an FBI study on crime statistics and their, uh, their most recent statistics largely uh, disprove the old notion that crime and socioeconomic status are closely related. It turns out uh, that sin doesn't take a break even when times are good. They're basically disproving that old notion that people in relationships can be just as broken among the rich as they can among the poor. Okay, clearly the ways of this world are broken. They don't work. And so Paul says, don't be conformed to this world because this world is broken. Rather be transformed. And that Greek word there is metamorpho, the word transformed in the ancient Greek. It means to be transfigured, just as Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is to say, we're to be otherworldly, not of this world. We're to be transfigured like Christ. And these two verses are so theologically rich in their message. We could just park it right here for the rest of the day. But they're foundational to healthy relationships, okay? Because healthy relationships are always rooted in Christ. Healthy relationships are always rooted in Christ. All life-giving, uplifting relationships, the kind that nourish you and enrich you and feed into your life health and strength and encouragement emotionally, spiritually, and physically, those relationships begin and end with Jesus Christ. All right, in his second biblical letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 6.14. And of course, we know that Jesus ate with sinners, right? He hung out with undesirables. So what's the deal with Paul's instruction here? Uh, because like Jesus, Paul spent a lot of time with unbelievers, Keith, this is ringing really bad up here. You can turn it down some. So what was the difference? Jesus hung out with sinners. Paul hung out with unbelievers. The difference is the manner of the relationship. In other words, yes, we're supposed to have relationships with unbelievers in the proper context. We form relationships outside the church. Why? So that we can be salt and light to the rest of the world, as Jesus describes us in Matthew chapter 5. But when it comes to those relationships that we identify ourselves with at a much deeper level, those are always to be reserved for fellow believers. And Paul understood that. He understood that healthy relationships are always rooted in Christ. Okay? The phrase unequally yoked in the Second Corinthians reference here is the Greek word... Uh, Heterozygeo, which refers to animals that were hitched up together and even crossbred with other animals of a different kind. So if you apply that to human beings, it refers to a relationship between two people where one person's conduct, conduct and, and direction in life strongly influences or controls the other in a way that is inequitable or unhealthy. Okay, and then Paul goes on to say, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's a reference to Satan. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. Healthy relationships are always rooted in Christ, which means that both parties in the relationship are conformed into the image of Christ continually by the renewing of their minds. Okay? 
So whether it's a friendship or a marriage or a very close working relationship, both parties must be transfigured into the likeness of Christ. So look, if you're a follower of Christ, you're never going to find health and strength and encouragement and fulfillment long term by marrying an unbeliever. Now, of course, God can, and he often does redeem the unbeliever in those cases very often, and we'll see a complete turnaround in the relationship for the better. So if you're married to an unbeliever already, there's hope, hear me. There's always hope uh, in your relationship as long as you're still both breathing because God is bigger than the dysfunction in your relationship and his sacrifice is bigger than all of our sin, right? So by far then, the most powerful thing that you can do for your unbelieving spouse is to speak the word of God into their life and then pray for them consistently and constantly, which we'll look at later in our text next week. But whatever you do, don't ever give up hope. Because as long as you have God in your life, there is always, always, always hope for you and for your marriage. Okay? But to those considering entering into a relationship with an unbeliever, a relationship that will yoke you to them, here's the best advice that you'll ever get. Stop considering it. It's a mistake. And you will regret it. Because the unbeliever cannot discern God's will, according to Paul in our text here. And they never will respect the fact that you can And so inevitably, you'll end up at an impasse in your relationship, which ultimately either leads to a severed relationship that ends bad or a dysfunctional relationship that will only drag you down and wear you out and exasperate you at every turn because you'll never be in harmony, which again, we'll see later in our text. So teenagers, uh, single adults, if you're considering dating an unbeliever, don't. It's a mistake. According to God's word, it's a mistake. If you're in business for yourself and you're considering going into a partnership with an unbeliever, don't do it. Because you'll never be on the same page in your business decisions, or very rarely, because you'll discern God's will at key times in that business and your partner won't. And you'll end up with either a failed business or one that is so stressful that it tears you down and wears you out and will eventually run you right into the ground. Okay, if you're a believer, your very closest, best friends in the world, those that you confide in the most, spend the most time with, share your life with, those shouldn't be unbelievers. Hear me, please. You can and should definitely have friends who are unbelievers. Yes, without a doubt. I have many friends who are not believers. Yes, you should have friends who are unbelievers, but we should never yoke ourselves in friendships with unbelievers because those relationships will ultimately fail to bring health and life and encouragement and strength into our lives. The two animals that are unequally yoked are constantly working against each other. It never works. And so eventually they wear each other out doing their work, and they end up accomplishing very little that is of any value. The same is true of us. That's why Paul used that analogy, because he understood that healthy relationships are always rooted in Christ. 
They're equally yoked in Christ. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 3. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It's interesting here that just before Paul addresses the subject of humility in this verse, he first points out that it is only by the grace given to him by God that he can talk to anyone else about humility. In other words, Paul recognizes the fact that his own qualification for instructing others in the way of humility comes only by way of God's grace to him. And so Paul humbles himself in his own letter before he instructs others to be humble with one another. And in that, he models for us another great truth about healthy relationships, okay? Healthy relationships start with humble people. Healthy relationships always start with humble people. If our self-appraisal The way that we view ourselves is higher than it ought to be. We will have a very difficult time ever being able to cultivate healthy relationships with others. Why? Because as we overesteem ourselves, we inevitably develop a skewed perspective on how we think we should be treated in that relationship and on how we think we should treat others. I'll just tell you, across the board, the most condescending people that I know personally... The ones that constantly, you know, talk down to you. Uh, the ones who always think that they know more than everyone else. The ones who can never admit when they're wrong. Those same folks in my life are across the board people who overesteem themselves. They think more highly of themselves than they ought to. And you've probably heard me say this before. But ignorance and arrogance just don't mix very well at all. All right? Although arrogance is never right... I can even understand it in some cases. I mean, if you're, if you're the greatest quarterback that has ever played the game of football, right? If you've, if you've made the greatest archaeological discovery of all time, if you uh, developed the theory of relativity, <laughs> if you've accomplished some truly remarkable and unequaled task as the culmination of your life's work, I understand that there may be a hint of arrogance there, and I'll cut you some slack because you've earned it, even if it isn't right. Likewise, I understand ignorance. Nobody knows everything, right? Despite the fact that some people are convinced that they do. And, and we're all ignorant about certain things in life. I'm ignorant of many things in life. And most of us can be taught, so I'm okay with ignorance in most cases. But for me, one of the most intolerable combinations of character traits in a person, maybe I should say character flaws, is found in those who are both ignorant and arrogant at the same time regarding the same subject. Honestly, I'd rather you just pick one and run with it. Right? Ignorance or arrogance, either one you prefer, but you don't get to choose both. Because if we possess both of those shortcomings at the same time, we're not only wrong, but we don't allow ourselves to be corrected or educated or taught the truth because of our arrogance. So we walk through life thinking that we're something that we're not, which only drives people away from us in the end. It's very hard to have meaningful relationships when you have a lot of arrogance and ignorance in your life. R.C. Sproul, a great scholar, cites an international study that was done a few years ago, and this is what he reported on that study. He said, Some years ago, an international test in mathematics was administered to children from ten nations, including the United States. The test had two parts. 
The first pertained to mathematical competency, and the second pertained to feelings of self-esteem with respect to the student's performance. Two ironies stood out. First, the Korean students were last in their estimation of their performance, but first in actual competency. The reason is that along with the rigorous pursuit of academic excellence, Korean students are taught principles of humility. Conversely, and to our national shame, the American children scored last in mathematical competency, but first in self-esteem. The American students had a high view of their competency in spite of their miserable performance. Self-esteem, as important as it is, can be damaging if we provide people with a higher opinion of themselves than they should have. Okay, ignorance and arrogance don't mix well. But many people live right there. And that's a dangerous place for any of us to be because once we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, knowing that we're all ignorant of some things, we become unteachable and inflexible, which will doom a relationship to failure when one or both parties in that relationship lacks humility. So, so what's the remedy, right? If we struggle with arrogance in a relationship, which we probably all do at times, I certainly have, how do we counter that? How do we fix that? Paul says, well, we should think about ourselves with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, whatever faith, whatever goodness, whatever ability that each of us actually has, we only have because God gave it to us. You can't forget that. None of us can boast in ourselves, rather only in Christ, just as Paul opens this verse by saying, I'm only able to talk to you about humility because the grace that's been given to me by God. And as well, this idea of humility in relationships, it really goes back to our first point, the idea that we must renew our minds daily because a renewed mind is a Christ-like mind and a Christ-like mind is a humble mind. So before you open your mouth and let whatever's bothering you about your spouse or friend or coworker come flying out, and believe me, I'm talking to myself here, before we let that thought and that attitude and that complaint come flying out of our mouths, we should always first take pause to reflect on ourselves and what we're about to say with sober judgment. And I can tell you from experience the times that I've actually been able to keep my mouth shut long enough to reflect with sober judgment on what was about to come out of my mouth. Almost in every case, what I was going to say or express ended up getting heavily revised. Because in those moments of reflection, I often become aware of my own overinflated self-appraisal. And I can then take a moment to humble myself, realizing that whatever good there is in me, anything that I may have attained or accomplished, any knowledge understanding or awareness that I've come to has all, every single bit of it has come from God. And so he, he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. And it is my responsibility then to simply express the truth in love with great humility. And like any other behavior in life, this is a learned response, by the way, that we have to practice daily. I know there are probably a precious few who don't struggle with this as much, and I tip my hat to you, but for the rest of us mortals, we're not going to wake up one day and all of a sudden think of others first and think soberly about ourselves and do everything in humility. It's just not, it's not going to happen on its own because for the most part, that's counter to our nature. 
we're generally taught from the time that we're babies, at least in this culture, to think about ourselves first and others later. So if you want your relationship to truly be healthy, if you want your relationships to breathe life into your life, there will have to be a heavy dose of humility on both sides. And that starts with us. Okay? It means you're going to have to do some very honest, sober self-assessment on a regular basis. You have to practice humility every day. Renewing your mind. Practicing humility every day until it becomes a very natural part of who you are and how you express yourself to others. Okay? Healthy relationships start with humble people. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, there was a clear understanding in the New Testament among believers that if you were a believer, if you were a follower of Christ, that meant you were a member not only of the body of Christ universally, but also a member of the local church, which is the local expression of the universal church. But for some reason, in the climate and culture of our society today, we've separated those two designations. Being a member of the universal body of Christ and being a member of the local expression of the body of Christ as if those are somehow two separate things. But in the New Testament, if you were a member of the body of Christ, you were a member of the local church. They were one and the same. There was no separation between the two. You you didn't have one without the other. Okay, Healthy relationships are cultivated within the church. Healthy relationships are cultivated within the church. We get married in the church, dedicated in the church, baptized in the church. We get put to rest in the church. Doesn't it make sense that our lives in between those milestones should be lived out in the church as well? This whole concept today, and I keep hearing it over and over again by people who've left the local church, and they say things like, well, being a Christian and attending a a church are two totally different things. I can choose not to be a part of the local church and that in no way affects my relationship with Christ. That whole idea is complete nonsense. It's complete nonsense. That's like saying being married and living together when you're married are two totally separate things. I can be married and not live with my spouse. Of course, technically that's true, right? But you will not be able to maintain a healthy, thriving growing relationship with your spouse if you live in two different places for the duration of your marriage. You won't. You cannot maintain a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ, which means you cannot maintain a healthy relationship with anyone else if you're a believer and not an active member of the local church. That's a fact. Put that on Facebook. See what happens. Actually, put your phones away. Don't put that on Facebook. Unless unless you enjoy the the carnage that comes from controversial religious posts on social media. The fact is that's a very unpopular position today. But I would submit to you that that is the true biblical position concerning relationships in the local church. And I've said it many times before. You read through the New Testament. There were no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. There were none. 
the great apostle Paul was sent out by the local church and always traveled and ministered with a group of believers as approved, by the way, by the leadership in the local church. You can say the same thing of Peter and John and Silas and John Mark and Barnabas and on and on and on. Even, even Philip the deacon, who seemed to be ministering alone in Samaria initially, received help and oversight from the local church. It's in Acts chapter 8. It tells us that as soon as the local church in Jerusalem heard about the ministry happening there, they sent Peter and John to help with the work that Philip was doing. And it's a good thing that they did because he needed help. All right, he needed help with the baptism of the Holy Spirit that wasn't happening and, and at least one possible false conversion under Philip's ministry concerning Simon the magician. And yet some people today will point to Moses and the other judges and they'll point to the prophets and they'll compare their, their standalone independent ministries with those Old Testament ministries. But you can't put our ministries today in the Old Testament context. Why? Because those Old Testament men and women of God didn't have the church. Once Acts 2 happened, and arguably even before that with, with Jesus and his disciples, once the New Testament church was established, everything changed in terms of how individual ministries were expressed. And also, everything changed as far as where deep relationships among believers were formed. And that was always within the context of the local church and its ministries. John MacArthur once pointed out, and I quote, the idea of experiencing salvation without belonging to a local church is foreign to the New Testament. That's true. The modern idea that we don't need the local church to thrive in our relationship with Jesus Christ and others is a complete distortion of the truth of Scripture. It's a great lie, and it's been fed by the hyper individualistic worldview that is one of the hallmarks of our culture today. As Christians, we're all a part of one body. And Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We cannot thrive without each other because we're all a part of the same body. And since that body is worldwide, the way that God created for us to be able to function in that worldwide body is through the local church. I hear people say, in fact, I read an article on Thursday night where a believer was trying to make the case, or a guy that claimed to be a believer, that the local church is a creation of men from power-hungry kinds of men. And what true believers need to do is leave the local church and the organization and the structure behind and just meet with other Christian friends in their homes have some good fellowship and share some time in the Bible. And that's all the church that anyone really needs. And then he tried to use scripture to justify that position. I'm telling you, I, I just don't believe that there's any way that you can be intellectually honest and actually read through the New Testament, assuming that you believe what it says and come to that conclusion. The local church was created by God with the power of the Holy Spirit working through men and women. There were apostles, elders, pastors, teachers, deacons, evangelists, missionaries, and members that all worked within the framework and authority of the organized, structured, local church. And that was the context in which they formed deep relationships and expressed their ministries. 
So the point is, when it comes to those relationships that we're yoked to, those deep, influential relationships in our lives, those should always be fostered within the context of the local church and its ministries, which means that if you're considering uh, dating someone or marrying someone or going into business with someone who claims to be a believer but does not believe in being an active member of a local church, you should think twice. You should use sober judgment because the local church is the context that God designed and created and gave to us as a gift for forming and fostering healthy relationships. One of the reasons our kids should be in kids' church. It's one of the reasons our teenagers should be in youth groups so they can form and foster healthy relationships in the context of the local church that are rooted in Christ. It's one of the reasons that we should consistently and constantly attend church on Sundays and on Wednesdays in community groups and for special events. You know, of course, we come to learn and, and worship and study and pray and give. It's all good, but we also come to form and foster healthy relationships. Obviously, the church isn't perfect by far, but it is the means by and through which God expresses himself in relationships, and it's where we should be cultivating ours, okay? Healthy relationships are cultivated in the church. And then let's finish our text for today, verses 9 and 10. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Okay, so Paul uh, ends the first 10 verses of this chapter talking about love and the need for us to express genuine love, he says, for one another. And if you look all the way back to verse 2, he starts off the first half of this chapter by talking about being perfect. Remember, he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And and that may seem like a a nice random thing to say, uh, but in fact, if you look at the subject of perfection in the New Testament, what you will find most often, far more often than, than not, is that it is tied to the subject of relationships And perfect relationships are always tied to the subject of love. Okay? Healthy relationships are bound together by love. They're bound together by love. If you you want to perfect uh, relationships in your life, if you want healthy, encouraging, strengthening relationships in your life, that will mean having unity in those relationships. And the only way to attain unity is through genuine love. Love for the Father first, and then love for each other second. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 9. In fact, he ties all of these 10 verses together by bookending them between love, excuse me, perfection and love. You know, I, I used to read uh, Matthew 5, 48 and become very discouraged. It's where Jesus said, uh, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And honestly, I used to just read that and hang my head. It always seemed to me like a really harsh thing to say, knowing that none of us would ever attain to that command, at least not in this life. So why say it? Right? Of course, we are called uh, as Christians to pursue perfection in Christ. So I don't in any way uh, want to minimize holiness or the pursuit of it in our daily lives. That is, we're commanded to that. It's very important. But there are some interesting indicators in Scripture as to how one can live perfectly even though we're far from being perfect people. 
John 17, 23, as Jesus is praying to the Father for his disciples, he prays that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He's not saying that they will become perfect as individuals, at least not in this passage. He's saying that their relationship can be perfectly unified through love. Unity in relationships comes by way of love. Love of the Father and the love that we have for one another. Then in uh, 1 John 4.18, we read that there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so we know that we're perfected in love, certainly in the Father's love. And of course, we know that sin keeps us from being perfect, right? And Peter makes an interesting statement about sin in 1 Peter 4.8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Likewise, Proverbs 10.12, it says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses, the word covers is a Hebrew verb. It's kasa. It means to conceal. Okay? Love overtakes. It conceals our sin. We've all sinned. None of us can claim that we've been perfect or that we are perfect, but we're commanded to live perfectly still. And the key to living perfectly is loving perfectly. That's it, man. The key to living perfectly is loving perfectly. And as we do that, as we love God and each other the way that we're supposed to, the imperfections in our relationships, the sins, the shortcomings in our relationships are overcome by our love for one another. Okay? I just want to be clear. This doesn't replace the need for repentance and forgiveness of sin in our lives. It's two different things. This is a statement about the power of love that can overcome the imperfections in our relationships that would otherwise wreck those relationships. Because God's love is greater than all of our sin. That's why when asked what the greatest commandment of them all was, Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend everything, all the law and the prophets. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. The key to living perfectly is loving perfectly. It's what holds healthy relationships together, perfect love. And that always starts with love for the Father and then love for each other. Okay? So think about it like this. Mary Beth and I are not perfect. I know that probably comes as a great surprise to most of you. <laughs> but it's true. And don't put that on Facebook either, please. We're not perfect. But you know what? We're perfect for each other. Do you understand the difference? Mary Beth isn't perfect, but she's perfect for me. I'm not perfect, but I'm perfect for her. And that kind of perfection that grows in a relationship can only happen when that relationship is rooted in Christ. He is, in fact, the very epicenter of our lives together. And then we must remain humble before God and each other. And that's very much a daily discipline. It's a daily active discipline, something we have to practice. And then we have to stay actively involved and invested into the local church. 
We practice perfect love again for the Father first and then for each other second. And, and uh, just one more note on love, like humility. We have to learn to love perfectly. All right? It's not something that comes naturally or intuitively because we're selfish creatures by nature. So loving perfectly is very much a learned process that requires daily renewal, just like humility. And, and that is true in our relationship both with God and in our relationship with others. So I just ask you today, what are you doing each day to love more? Are you being intentional and spending time with God and those that you're in relationship with? Or are your relationships rooted in Christ, bathed in humility, cultivated within the body of Christ and covered by love? As these are four keys, and we'll look at some more next week in part two of this sermon, but these are four keys to forming new relationships and even turning existing relationships that may be in trouble into those that breathe new life into your life. Okay? So are your relationships stressing you out? Are they wearing you out? Are they pulling you down? Are they leaving you feeling empty or depressed or afraid or confused? You follow this prescription in God's Word and your relationships will begin to change. I've been blessed my entire life in the fact that for the most part I've been in relationship with a lot of really remarkable people. And the reason is I have, with very few exceptions, followed these principles into my relationships. And the only relationships that I've experienced in my life that have really messed me up were the ones that I pursued outside of God's instruction in His Word. That's a fact. So does that new boyfriend... Love God with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength? Is his life rooted in Christ? If not, dump him. Let Jesus pick him up. Jesus can fix him. You cannot. Is your marriage in turmoil? Is there strife, disunity in your marriage? Look, take some time to think about yourself and your life with sober judgment. And then humble yourself before your spouse, even if you're right and she is wrong, which is never the case, by the way. But even if it were, humble yourself before her and let God soften your heart and hers. And listen, if you're struggling in your relationships and maybe, uh, maybe you come to church once a month or so, why don't you commit to some consistency there and invest into your relationships by investing into the body of Christ because your relationships can be greatly cultivated within that context, within the church, but you have to show up. You have to engage. You have to be a part of what God is doing in the body if you're ever going to function as he created you to, if your relationships are ever going to work like they're supposed to. And then finally today, and I close with this, if your relationships are not what they should be, not what they could be, we'll just take our counsel from the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. This is what he says. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. 
as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, well, that's quite a list we just read. But Paul says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Let's pray.